Is that too that is too loud? It's too loud for me. That last song we sung just for you. Those of you that are in the congregation right now and will remember this, that is one of the songs I want sung at my memorial. How many of you are actually planning your memorial? You're being raptured. It's tomorrow at noon, I suppose. I would encourage you to think about that. Because how do you want people to remember you? How do you want them to remember the most important thing about your life? And for me, it's that music and kids. In fact, those of you that have seen this or know the song Dive by Stephen Curtis Chapman, that will be performed at my memorial. So I encourage you to do that. You guys ready for this? I'm not sure I am. But let's see what happens. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to your word now. And we come to it humbly because, Father, there isn't a man on earth that can proclaim the word of God in a complete and satisfying way. But, Father, I pray that you would use the words of my mouth, that they would be straight from the throne room of heaven, and, God, that they would touch hearts that are already prepared. And, God, that your word would perform what it was sent for. And God, you would be glorified in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know if this was the water from last week, but I don't really care. So, Good. For the last month or so, my mind and heart have been gripped by some of the topics from adult Sunday school and from the Wednesday night prayer time. And let me take this opportunity to give you another invitation to come to the adult Sunday school. We have, the elders have been taking turns teaching on the attributes of God. And it has been a stirring study, and for those of us that have been preparing to pre uh, present those attributes in a study form, believe me, it is mind-numbing. Is, there is so much that these finite minds just cannot get a hold of. But what's interesting, I don't know if, Dennis, if you were the one that came up with this phrase or somebody borrowed it from somebody else, but it's like pushing against haystack rock out here. We're not getting very far pushing that rock. But the exercise of it is really healthy. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already taken advantage of the adult Sunday school, it's from 11.15 to 12. You're out of here at 12. We try to make sure we do that because we don't want the people back there with the little guys to have to go any more than 45 minutes. So... And for the Wednesday night service. Um, gee, I don't know if I should 
use this. I heard this this last week. Well, let's just dump, jump into the deep end here. You can tell how popular a church is by who shows up on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular a preacher is by who shows up Sunday night. You can tell how popular Jesus is by who shows up on Wednesday night. Just an encouragement, just an encouragement to have you come out Wednesday night. We do a, we're trying to get a short devotional and then some prayer time. And believe me, that is where the, the church marches on, is from that prayer time. So I encourage you to come out on Wednesday nights. So I've had these two or three big themes running through my mind. And believe me, there's a lot of room up there. <laughs> and my challenge has been how to mesh them together in a single sermon. Okay, so let's start with the first trigger point in how I got started on this little journey. One evening, not too long ago, I was... Going, I was searching for cargo shorts. Okay, I haven't bought any cargo shorts in five or six years. So I was, I needed some more. Believe me, the internet is full of this stuff. And how many of you, as you get older, want to find the guy that invented elastic stuff? <laughs> and knight this guy? They're really hard to find. But in my searching, I found a hat. <laughs> I, love, I love hats. Uh, some of you, when you go traveling to different places, you buy a t-shirt to commemorate the fact that you've been someplace and you buy the t-shirt. I buy hats. Well, I saw this hat, and I just had to have it. There's a cross on it, and it says, Normal isn't coming back. Jesus is. Amen? Amen? For normal, some of you folks that are sitting here, some of you folks that are sitting here, this was in the 50s or 60s, that's normal to you. For some of you, 30, 40-somethings, normal is something a little bit different than those of us from the 50s and 60s. And then the 80s and 90s, something different. But whatever you think normal is, it's not coming back. But Jesus is. So, if you would turn to John chapter 14... It's going to be a, we're going to have a little bit of a sword drill today, so before we actually get to where I was going, I guess my title didn't get up there. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus speaking. Don't let your hearts 
I'm reading for the New Living Translation. For those of you that are visiting, I use the New Living Translation. I am the little guy's pastor. And I found the New Living Translation was an easy way to impress the Word of God on young people because we're speaking in the thing, the language that they speak all day long. So, John 14, verse 1, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. Hallelujah. He's already promised that he's coming back for us, to take us and place us in the place that he is, so that we will always be with him. Is that encouraging? Normal isn't coming back. Jesus is. That's the really good news. So, you can keep your finger there if you like. Dan's first Wednesday back after his vacation, he went to Matthew 9. So if you want to turn to Matthew 9, told you this was going to be a sword drill. Everybody there? Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields, into his fields. Obviously, the main point in that particular passage would be praying to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. Do you have any doubt that there are not enough workers out there? Teaching the Word of God, proclaiming the Word of God, answering questions, even prodding sometimes might be helpful. But the one point that Dan brought out in that little devotional was that verse 36 when he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless. Do you look out on this culture right now and do you have a sense that it is a confused and helpless Generation, culture, but do you have any compassion for those folks out there that are confused and helpless? 
They have been pushed in all kinds of different ways. The public school systems, uh, the things they see on TV, oh my goodness, some of the things they see on TV now. Confused and helpless. But do you have compassion on them? Or are you more than willing to judge them? Okay. So another thing that was pulling at me. Last Sunday, I had the opportunity to lead adult Sunday school. This is fresh, by the way. Otherwise, it wouldn't be this cold. <laughs> the attribute I got to teach on was justice. A.W. Pink, which is one of the books we're using in this study, A.W. Pink defined justice as the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Let me say that one more time. The holy, justice is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. And from his book, The Attributes of God, I cited this quote, Because God is holy, he hates all sin. And because he hates all sin, his anger burns against the sinner. So now turn to Hebrews 10. Now see, now remember, all of this stuff is bouncing around in my head, and I'm trying to figure out how in the world do I put this together in one sermon, because these are all potential sermons in themselves. Hebrews 10, verse 26. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume His enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord will, the Lord will judge his own people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do not want to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I'm not going to make you go to the next passage because most of us would spend the next five minutes finding it. But I've got it marked. Nahum. 
and you find Nahum? If you don't have an electronic device in your hand? Let me read Nahum's description of this living God. If you're going there, it's chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose Him and continues to rage against His enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but His power is great, and He never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays His power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath His feet. At His command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade, and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In His presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before His fierce anger? Who can survive His burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in His presence. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The description that John writes about seeing the Son of Man for the first time in Revelation makes you understand that Jesus is not in swaddling clothes. When we think about justice and the bad guys getting what they deserve, we think, you know, come in, cut them off at the knees. Do away with them. But God's approach will be that of the righteous judge who will base his judgment on whether or not each person has named Jesus as Lord and Savior. It will not be vindictive but it will be terrible. Think of the penalty that Moses and Aaron endured because they disobeyed God in not speaking to the rock. But in his anger, Moses struck the rock. Neither of them went into the promised land. Or the judgment against Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They chose to resist the authority of Moses and Aaron. And the earth opened up. And not only they died, but their families and all of their possessions went with them. It will be a terrible judgment. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Lying to the Holy Spirit and dropping dead right there in front of Peter. And we can't forget Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a pretty intense judgment on sin. The Bible tells us that these and all who reject Jesus Christ will be confined in a place of eternal, eternal torment. A place called hell. Isn't it interesting that the Bible describes hell as an eternal torment? I don't know what that conjures up in your mind, but for me, it's 
I mean, a torment for me would to be in a completely dark room with no light and nothing but screaming at you all the time. That would be torment to me. I have no idea what it's going to be like. The Bible doesn't tell us any more than it's going to be a place of torment. So how does all of this come together? Okay, the landing spot, John 4. Maybe it would be better if somebody, somebody electronically just read it. <laughs> that's a cool action. Actually, that's very cool that it will do that. John chapter 4, verse 27. This is the section where Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He has already spoken to her, and the disciples had gone into town to find food because of their travel. Everybody was hungry. And at verse 27, just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This is one of, it just blows my mind to think that Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman. And she is out there at a point of the day that is blazing hot. Nobody comes there except her at this time of day because nobody wants to associate with her because of her past. But Jesus spends quite a bit of time with her. And this woman, who is despised by everybody in town, runs back into town proclaiming I just met a guy that told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? What changed about her from the time she walked out to that well until she went back into town that anybody would listen to her? What changed about this woman that people would actually listen to her to the point where they're willing to go out and see this guy? Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. 
The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Several years ago, probably back 2000, 2001, I had the opportunity to speak at a summer camp for junior campers. These were kids fourth grade to seventh grade. Whoa, in my wheelhouse or what? I had so much fun in those weeks that I got to do that. One of the, I got to this passage and I kept trying to figure out how in the world can I illustrate this passage to a, to a bunch of kids so that maybe they might remember it. So I called it the bus to heaven skit. So I had the counselors put two rows of chairs and then somebody was up there pretending to drive and then I got on the bus. And I got on the bus because I got saved. I no longer had the wrath of God aimed at me. I got saved, so I was on the bus to heaven. And then the counselor started streaming onto the bus. And then I had the people, I had some people planted out in the audience, and there were probably 90 to 100 kids in this group. And all of a sudden there would be this, help us, help us. And one of the counselors that was on the bus would say, I got, I got to go, I got to go help them. And I would say, don't get off the bus. What if the bus leaves, leaves before you get back? And that happened until almost all of the counselors were off the bus. The point being, do you see the harvest? It's ripe. It is very ripe. And you have to ask yourself, are you content to, sit, to stay on the bus to heaven and miss the opportunity to do God's will, which he has planned for you, whatever that may be? It's going to be different absolutely for every single one of us. We can't just expect the hired gun or the elders, to go out and do the work of evangelism or talking to people about Christ? Are you going to stay on the bus to heaven and not risk anything? Then that got me to thinking, that got me to thinking about the gravity of forgiven sin. Have you ever thought about the fact that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have named him as your Lord and Savior, have you ever stopped to think 
that the thing that would bring you the wrath of God has been taken away. That you will never have to experience that wrath that God has planned at the end of the age. It's incredible to think that all of that wrath has been removed from those that have named Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Think about what an amazing thing that is. Some of you probably have remembered that I love music videos. And one of my favorites now is, the song is titled Mercy, and it's by uh, the Maverick City Music Group. And a couple of lines from that song, I'm living proof of what the mercy of God can do. Let that sink in. I am living proof of what the mercy of God can do. And then another line says, I am so glad my freedom isn't based on what I've done. I'm so glad my freedom isn't based on what I've done, but on the mercy of God and the power of the blood. Redemptive theology teaches that mercy does not become effective toward a man until justice has done its work. The just penalty for sin was exacted when Christ our substitute died for us on the cross. That's a quote from Tozer. Let me read that again. Redemptive theology teaches that mercy does not become effective toward a man until justice has done its work. The just penalty for sin was exacted when Christ our substitute died for us on the cross. Justice has to be done first. If you are not convinced you are a sinner and that you need a Savior, that you're not subject to that wrath that will be poured out at the end of the age, then you're not ready to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Until you are convinced that you're a sinner, you can repeat these words, you can have them memorized, and it will do you no good. You need to know that you need a Savior. Now there's probably, I don't doubt it for a second, that there are people in this room right now that have not named Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We don't do altar calls here at PCBC, and I'm not going to do one now. But if you feel like Somehow, the Holy Spirit is writing you right now, gently nudging, or maybe he's pounding. If that's you, then Mitch, hold up your hand. Dennis, your hand. Talk to one of us before you leave this building. Maybe it is today that is the day of salvation for you. 
If you feel like you do not know who Jesus is as your Lord and Savior, then please don't leave this room until you've talked to one of us. Amen? Father, it is a humbling experience 